0: the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. One of the biggest debates we have is the role of social media in politics and actually in, uh, in many things. And one person who has made a, a career in this is Kate Starbert, who is uh, you're an associate professor now at the UDL, right?
1: Uh, the promotion is, is, has happened to the associate professor, but uh, the title doesn't confer for another couple of weeks.
0: Okay. Well, anyway, that's great. Uh, when I first saw this uh, news release, I said, she plays basketball because uh, you were part of the old uh, Seattle Reign. And I distinctly remember uh, bringing my daughters to see a game and uh, seeing them marvel at women playing basketball at a professional level. So uh you made quite an impact that then and I'm going to ask you later on about how you made the transition from basketball to research. But first let's talk about this uh this area of uh of study. When you when you talk about the role of social media in a crisis and the positive and the negative. How has it changed from the days when people would say call each other on the phone or just uh Share something over the back fence.
1: Yeah, I think the um, social media opens up a lot of different kinds of com- uh, conversations where you're not just talking to one person. You're not just one person broadcasting to a large number of people, but there's a back and forth between um, between individuals, between different kinds of audiences where individuals can actually share information with media officials Um, as well as other people in their neighborhood or people halfway across the world. And so what happens uh, after crisis events is a lot of people converge digitally onto the event to see what's going on, to share information. Uh, And we've actually seen a lot of cases where people um, converge and start helping each other, trying to help people get information, start organizing volunteer efforts. There's actually been some really sort of pro-social activity that we'd see uh, on social media after crisis events. More recently, we've become interested in, in the in the sharing of rumors and the spread of misinformation. And then even more recently, in the last few years, we've um, begun to focus on the intentional spread of disinformation uh, around crisis events and are other kinds of breaking news. So
0: explain me the difference between disinformation and misinformation.
1: Yeah. So actually, the crisis context is a great one to think about this. Uh, after a crisis event, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of anxiety and uncertainty. And people are just trying to figure things out and actually spreading rumors and trying to trying to understand and coming up with explanations is kind of a natural part of, of the aftermath of crisis events, and we might not even want to problematize that because it's really important for people um, to – they don't have perfect information and they're trying to get the best information they have, and sometimes it turns out to be wrong. So rumors are actually unintentional misinformation. But when you talk about disinformation, disinformation um, is intentional, uh, and there's a certain kind of disinformation that we're seeing in our, in our space that has – Uh, a certain kind of strategic uh, intent of manipulating um, how people think about world events, manipulating political outcomes, and actually just undermining trust in information spaces. So
0: we're talking about then the the Russian manipulation of our election process in part, or are we talking about other things too?
1: I think, I mean, uh, that is an example of disinformation, but disinformation can be used by domestic actors. It can be used by your own government against you. And it can be, you know, it's, it, Russia is not the only um, perpetrator of disinformation in the information spaces that we study. So, give me
0: an example of some of the motives behind disinformation. What is the what is the disinformer trying to accomplish?
1: Well, there's a couple of different things. I mean, to 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 take your example, which is one we've studied a lot of Russian disinformation. Um, the motives are multi; they're, they're multi-dimensional on a short-term scale and a long-term scale. In the short term, um, to be disinformed is to is to believe a false narrative. But in the long term, what happens is um, that disinformation erodes our trust in information. It sows doubt. It makes us confused about uh, whether or not we can trust something, whether or not we can trust information. It also begins to sow division in society, so it amplifies um, differences. And one of the theoretical perspectives we're working right now on, on how Russian disinformation works and what its purposes are are really to sort of undermine our common ground. Where we can 't come together to agree on what is actually happening, what you know we don't have a shared understanding, right. and therefore we can't actually govern as a democratic system, everybody has their own facts right, yeah,
0: but the way to handle that of course, is the branding of certain sources as being reliable, so uh, a story that you read in The New York Times or the Washington Post is going to be more credible than something you that was shared on Facebook from a site you never heard of right
1: i i um, I agree that it's easy for some of us to think that way, but I think a lot of people assign different kinds of reliability to different sources, mm-hmm. uh, and especially in, in the modern information space where you can really get get any source. There's all sorts of possibilities of what of what kind of information are out, is out there, and a lot of times people tend to seek out things that already aligns with what they believe, mm-hmm. and then w- when we do that, we become really uh, vulnerable to disinformation because we're seeking things that... That, that are what we want to believe rather than what is actually true.
0: Yes, but doesn't that ever come to the point where you realize that's what you're doing to yourself and that you, in fact that you are making yourself more vulnerable. I mean, usually people don't want to be considered vulnerable. They want to be considered smart and in control of things.
1: Yeah, they do. And most people that we talk to, even people that, I've, that I'm that i watching share disinformation, will will say that they're not the suckers, that someone else is the really? one that believes disinformation. Even, Actually, though
0: you, even though you're seeing them behaving like suckers.
1: Ab- absolutely. And, and, to, and to turn that back around, our own researchers, when we start studying disinformation, it can be so compelling. When we've studied disinformation that's targeted towards people like us, so I have a research team, a lot of left-leaning individuals, and some of them are from international countries, so they're mm. kind of they resonate with some far-left uh, kinds of uh, of narratives. Uh, I've seen my research team fall victim to some of the the disinformation targeting the far left. Like and it, what? Um, when we were studying the white helmets in uh, the campaign against the white helmets in syria uh-huh. um the white helmets it, it, if you don 't know a lot about it, the white helmets have been targeted for years by a disinformation campaign from Russia to kind of undermine And who are the work. they the white helmets are a humanitarian response yeah. organization that works in rebel held areas of syria so they 're um, in the they 're in the areas that were sort of standing up against assad okay and they were targeted they were undermined and it was very it was a very effective campaign you can actually see people on the left in the US who who believe this propaganda campaign against the white helmets and will amplify it and and share things about it And um, when when my students first went in to study this, it took them about two months to to actually, they went in, they're like, oh, this stuff actually looks pretty real. Are you sure that the White Helmets are a humanitarian response organization? Because this content is really compelling. And then it took us, you know, months to sort of map out how that information was reaching them and how people were sharing it and how it was manipulating them before the students kind of recognized, oh, I was being manipulated. And I was, even as disinformation researchers, we're vulnerable.
0: Wow. Did that surprise them?
1: Uh, it surprised them. It surprised it surprised me, um, especially some of the more senior students. And actually, it was it was more effective on the more senior students who were, like PhD students who have seen more of the world and have read more. And have that's sort really of, disturbing yeah.
0: because you you would like to think that education would inoculate you against against being taken by one of these things.
1: Yeah, one of the most troubling things we see is actually that that disinformation uses the rhetoric of critical thinking. To actually try to break down everything, to create doubt about everything, to sort of um, to break down reality, and so they'll take critical thinking into this sort of nihilistic uh, skepticism, where you stop trusting trusting anything, and that's you know in critical thinking, I mean it's really important for how we understand media, mm-hmm. but uh, it can be sort of co opted in these. So
0: cases. teaching critical thinking skills isn't enough because those are the very skills that these these. People are the, the misinformers are manipulated.
1: Yeah, we need to be uh, we need to be aware of how that sort of rhetoric of critical thinking is being used um, to to sort of. Take well,
0: then what do you do? Then, then then there's no hope.
1: <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I think that the, I, I like to believe there's hope. I mean, we're working on the problem, you know, but it definitely is more complex. It's not there's not easy solutions. I think it's going to take a lot of. Um, I think it's going to take solutions from multiple different directions. We're going to have to look at how technology might work differently. We're going to have to build up journalism to make you know make uh-huh. it more trustworthy. Um, we're going to have to have education solutions.
0: The only rule of thumb I've been able to figure out is, because as, as somebody who's uh, on the air doing, doing news broadcasts all day, I'm always looking for the most interesting story, right? Right. And uh, now I've come to think that the moment I see a story that is really interesting and I really want to do, that's when to watch out. Because somebody is probably thinking the very same thing I am. I've got five minutes to fill, and I want to be the most interesting stuff. And if something's too interesting, that's when I have to get it from, like, three or four different places before running with it.
1: Absolutely. I think that's – I mean, uh, I think we're all kind of becoming more savvy about that. I remember, um, you know, not too many months ago seeing the first images of um, the Notre Dame Cathedral on fire in, in, in France. And I didn't believe it at first. I thought, oh, those got those have to be fake images because I'm just so trained now to doubt, mm-hmm. you know, to doubt what what I'm seeing um, because I, I know that you know we have synthetic media, synthetic images. You know, we can we can create all sorts of images of different things, and so um, I think there's a value to being skeptical, but there's also a danger of being too skeptical, and so we have to learn whom to trust again and and learn how to trust and also have sort of a sense of like. How do we build more trustworthy media systems and information systems?
0: So how is your research being used and who is it intended for? Is Has Facebook shown an interest? Have Google, the other aggregators, shown an interest in, in using this to help us out a little bit?
1: Um, we have a lot of in- interesting conversations with people. Um, the, the social media companies in the last couple of years, I think we can all sort of be critical of them moving too slowly. Uh, and allowing this problem to sort of these problems to pr- proliferate and sort of abdicating some of the responsibility early on. but uh, I have had great conversations. I have seen them that at interesting tables, they're showing up at conferences uh, and they're definitely they understand the complexity of the problem and they are in conversation with researchers like like me and and my team, and we're not the only ones they, they're talking to a lot of different people. And so um, this is it's sort of an all hands on deck type of thing, and there's different researchers from different, um, fields working and and the technology companies are are trying to be part of those conversations because I think they realize this is a really complex problem and they're not going to be able to solve it. Online.
0: Who has a good model? Does Wikipedia have a good model?
1: I mean, each each social media platform affords different things or allows different things depending on their features. Wikipedia has a has a great model for what it what it does. Um, it has some limitations. There are some certain. Kinds Can you of biases. trust it?
0: I mean, I, I look at I go to Wikipedia a lot, quite frankly, and I. And I, I've come to trust it because, even to the point that I donate to it on a regular basis, because there, there seem to be dedicated people who the moment somebody tries to take over a significant Wikipedia page and fill it with propaganda, it's, they're immediately called out.
1: Yeah. So they have, these, they have great moderation policies and sort of procedures and practices there at Wikipedia that kind of enable the, the, the people that are there curating to... Um, to try to keep not a neutral—I mean, neutral is the wrong word—but to keep a uh, to keep a trustworthy platform where where we're trying where we're getting at sort of multiple viewpoints, uh, factual viewpoints, but also getting you know not false balance, right? So they're they're actually getting towards the truth of things. Um, there are some weaknesses and vulnerabilities with Wikipedia as well. We're not seeing that in English language Wikipedia. We're not seeing that on sort of U.S.-based topics, but there are certain. Um, there are certain subcommunities of Wikipedia based on language, where a certain political group uh, has taken over, where they have yeah. all their. Um, I could see that. Where they have all their people as the um, moderators, yeah. and they're able to kind of like push their their kind of view and and curate everything and edit everything to fit their view. Uh, I think the way it developed in the U.S., we, they already had all this infrastructure before the information operation started, at, and so. Um, so for English-based Wikipedia, I think it's a really strong. I think it's a really, um, a really high-quality source of information. I, I'm kind of wary on breaking news events because it takes a while for them to settle. Yes, and then also sort of niche topics can be overtaken by a, a, a group of people that are um, that are motivated to do it. Um, but in the long term, those usually get edited out.
0: Should unvetted live video be allowed?
1: Oh, that's a little bit outside of my. I mean. Be allowed by whom?
0: By anybody. I mean, yeah. the government would have to step in. But as a broadcaster, we are subject to government regulation. Right. We have to put everything. Everything we do is on a, on a delay now just to just to be safe for some reason. I, I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's, that's what we do. And we're held responsible for what goes out over the air. The people who are employed here, if they were to make up something, would be fired. So Facebook is a broadcaster with basically no editing where anybody can can hijack the transmitter and broadcast anything they want almost anonymously because you can set up phony Facebook accounts not be held responsible for it which strikes me as pretty much a crazy way to run a business
1: what's their only way that business is going to run because they can't well they, they could can start hiring
0: possibly... live editors well i know they can't possibly do it because they've they've allowed this thing to you know well, blossom them out of control
1: right well they're they're there's no way for them to hire moderators at the scale that the sharing happens and so their their whole sort of content sharing model it would be very hard to support but
0: there would be ways robust. right because i mean if 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 it's being picked if a broadcast is being picked up by 50 people fine but if it's being picked up by a million people you need to have a human being there right. saying so, should this be on the air
1: so this is this is sort of um, uh, they could moderate based on how widely seen the content is. And once the content is seen by this many people or once it hits a certain kind of influencer, then they would come through and send it to their moderation and or or, or slow it down and, and make it move more slowly. But you use the example of video content, but would you apply that to images? Would you apply that to text? Where do we draw the line of yeah. like what kind of communication do we do we stop when and who moderates what? I think there are some interesting conversations to have around um around sort of audience size or um, sort of network features, when it hits certain parts of the network, then we need to, you know, because when it hits an influencer, when it hits, you know, somebody who has a big audience, that may be where, you know, the moderation needs to happen.
0: So are you concerned about threats to democracy in this technology? Absolutely. And and tell me how that would play out.
1: I think we're already seeing it play out. Uh, where we uh, are losing trust in our democratic society, um, we are having direct attacks on the election infrastructure, which is going to diminish our trust in it. We're having sort of rhetorical attacks on our election infrastructure where people say, oh, they're cheating or voter fraud or whatever, which undermines our trust in election re- in the results of elections. Um, we're becoming more polarized, which makes it hard to come together to have conversations about how to govern ourselves. And we're losing that kind of shared understanding of what's actually going on because our information space is fragmented. We're all getting information from different places. And it's often information that doesn't align. It's like two totally different views of of, of an event Uh and then the uh, wi- widely spread conspiracy theories, we, we don't even have like a common understanding of what's what's going on. And a society like that is going to have a hard time um, governing using democratic using a democratic model. And I think that's that's where the sort of pervasive spread of disinformation is really dangerous to a democratic society. And I think we really need to figure out collectively, um, how do we uh, resist that? How do, how do we become more resilient to these attacks? Um, otherwise, the drift is going to be towards authoritarian models of... Well, that's the next question,
0: of course, because China has decided to do to, to take control of this. They, they control the Internet. They have cameras everywhere, and they nip demonstrations in the bud. Although, from what I hear, it's not covered much, but I hear there have been some, some huge demonstrations and protest demonstrations in in China. We certainly have seen that in Hong Kong now. So is that the, really the only way to get control of this, is to move towards some kind of complete government control of the flow of information?
1: I um, I would not advise that as a, as, a, as a way to go. I think there is sort of globally a rise in authoritarian leadership in different places, and I think that our information systems are part of the cause of why um, authoritarian um, structures are on the rise and sort of right-wing populist authoritarian leaders are becoming popular in different places and... and, and Taking and maintaining power, um, I'm not sure that's that's a desirable state. Um, but I do think uh, sort of the Western democratic model is going to have to figure out what to do with this new sort of paradigm of information sharing, and and figure out how um, how to shore up um, our, our vulnerabilities. I think. Uh, democratic societies have always been attacked right at our value systems at freedom of speech. You know,
0: so are there historical precedents for what we're seeing now?
1: Uh, well, the the tactics of disinformation going th- like targeting uh, freedom of speech are longstanding. So there's an old statement about I can't remember which KGB or uh, Soviet Union leader said this, but it was something about if if the U.S. didn't have the free press, we would have to invent it for them, because they've often <laughs> uh, targeted and tried to use. Um, unwitting agents, and those unwitting agents are often members of the press, to to push out their narratives.
0: Whereas our own founders felt that free press was fundamental to the the security of a democracy.
1: And it is, right? So it absolutely is, but it's also a vulnerability. So how do we navigate um, where we kind of allow this sort of flourishing of the sharing of ideas without the intentional manipulation of those? So disinformation isn't about isn't about us sharing ideas and trying to figure out which ideas that are the best. It's actually trying to just jam the signal so we actually don't even get to the good ideas because it's so overwhelmed with, with with information that's just supposed to make us doubt what we're seeing. And and it's not trying to lead us to being informed. It's trying to lead us to the opposite.
0: So this is still very much in flux. And as far as you know, there's there's really no reliable clearinghouse that everybody agrees on where you can go to check whether something you've read is true or false.
1: Well, we're so divided that if one group went there for their information, Mm -hmm. another group would say that would be the reason not to go there. So not even Snopes, huh? Right. Well, no, unfortunately not. And you can actually see targeted attacks against Snopes starting a few years ago where they were trying to undermine people's trust in it.
0: Yeah. So now what I want to know is, how did you go from being a, a basketball star with the uh, Seattle rain and then later the Seattle storm, to becoming uh, basically a genius Ph.D. working on uh, informatics. What
1: a, yeah, I guess that's a good question. I'm not sure that this the story is all that interesting, but I did, um, let's see, uh, I'm about 30 years old. I was playing overseas at the time, so I finished my professional career. I played a few years in the WNBA, and then I started playing overseas, and I finished up in Spain, I guess. And uh, it played... Three seasons there. Really enjoyed it. Um, Really enjoyed living overseas. And and then I I had a computer science degree as an undergrad, Mm -hmm. but I had gone to Stanford. At Stanford, yeah. yeah. But I hadn't done anything for ten years with it. Really? Not really. I mean, I'd done a little bit here and there, but I was really not fresh. And so I was like, okay, so I'm ten years out. I don't I don't have any training to do anything. I uh, I don't really know how to go to a job because I've been doing this sort of, sort of like you know two hours here, two hours there kind of job for years, and I was like, what should I do? Like, oh, I'll, I'll go back to school. Um, and I just got actually lucky. I was um, I had been invited to um, a luncheon for women in STEM, or actually it was women in in ICT or information technology, and mm-hmm. they were they were having a luncheon about how to get women, more women and girls involved in in technical careers. And the person who sat next to me was like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go back to school. And and he was like, well, what are you going to go back to school in? And I'm like, well, I've been thinking anthropology because I'm really interested in in people and cultures because I've been living abroad and all these things. And he said, well, didn't you have an undergraduate degree in computer science? I said, oh, yes, but I, you know, whatever. And he's like, well, there's this whole new field where you can do anthropology and computer science together, where Uh you can look at how people interact but in digital spaces. And I said, "What there is?" And so he's like, "Yeah." And we're and I have got this program at, that I've been uh, starting at the um, University of Colorado, and you should come. And, and one thing that leads to the next, and I'm at the University of Colorado, and then um, in a PhD program there. And uh, then my first year, I, I meet uh, a professor there, Laisha Palin, who was um, one of the first people doing work on uh, what what she ended up naming crisis informatics, which was the study of uh, how information, communication technology, social media are used after crisis events. And so she started studying that. I was like, well, I want to work with you because you're really smart. And so then I just ended up uh, as sort of the ground floor of studying the use of social media during crisis events.
0: And did your experience as a professional basketball player help you in any way?
1: There is something about the self-motivation and the work ethic that goes into being a good athlete that really helps um, becoming an academic, especially the ability to motivate yourself to work because there's not always someone sitting over your shoulder telling you what to do. So you have mm-hmm. to be able to kind of do it yourself. Um, and the other thing for me was really um, public speaking. All the practice I'd had public speaking as, a, um, as an athlete um, really translated well into sort of figuring out how to communicate my ideas when I was, a, when I was an academic and then being able to stand on the stage to give talks and things was right. really helpful as a junior academic.
0: Well, I, I think being able to meet deadlines and work under pressure, and you know when people are either cheering you or booing you, uh, <laughs> doesn't that help? create creates resilience.
1: I, maybe it has. Yeah, maybe it <laughs> helps me uh, kind of weed through my comments of my on my Twitter account and not get too bothered by some of them. Um, but uh, certainly, I've, certainly, there's things that I, I that I'm that I'm not aware of how they, mm-hmm. how they affected me, but there's no way that I can think of myself having not been a basketball player. So It's so kind of in, in, intertwined with who I became. Um, and at the same time, I hardly ever do anything that seems to have a direct connection. Yeah. So,
0: well, I mean, it, it really surprised me when, I, when I, I thought this was going to be an interview about basketball. I said, so she's a PhD in informatics at the you know, <laughs> teaching informatics. So I was, I was really stunned. And so I, I think that's a fascinating story. And so I'm curious about a couple of things then. Um, as a woman in uh, academia, have you encountered any discrimination
1: yes i that 's an interesting question and it 's hard um it 's going to be a little bit hard for me to answer because i can 't speak for all women, and I have because of who I am, because of my background because i 'm six foot two because I present in a way that takes up more space than a lot of people, I may not be as I may not encounter as much gender discrimination as some of my other colleagues, and in fact, Mm -hmm. my advisor at the University of Colorado pointed that out to me that that she would that students would defer to me rather than her. I was a foot taller than she was, and I, you know, I'm taking up. So
0: maybe it's not gender; it's just height.
1: Well, I mean, there's part. Well, I present a little bit more masculine. I have shorter. Uh I have short hair. My voice is lower, and so I actually may may get a little bit of the male privilege that. that some of my male college colleagues get. I have never heard a woman say that. Before. I and it's been it's been hard for me to reflect on it but I have actually now seen it over time in, in a little bit of action. Um, on on top of that I'm in a department human centered design and engineering that is more than 50% women. Mm-hmm. We're in the college of engineering but it's um, the the faculty members, the students are all sort of split about 50-50 um, in, in across the different levels of the department. And so I we, I don't feel any gender discrimination there at all. Yeah. Um, in fact, I feel it's a very comfortable place to work, and um, and it's a wonderful department.
0: Do you know Megan Rapino?
1: I do not know her, no. <laughs> I, I know Sue, uh, I, I, but I don't you know, know her. You
0: know Sue, yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me where you stand on the whole issue of equal pay in women's sports.
1: I don't have. Um, I, don't, I don't think I have a great. Um, I don't think I have a great response for that. I'm not. Um, I'm not paying attention to those conversations as as much as other people are because I'm so busy doing my own thing here mm-hmm. that I'm not kind of up on that. I um, I would say that if there is a place where that argument should be made, it's for the women's soccer because they're just such a great product right now and they are getting so much attention. And it's it's very clear that um, you know if you ask anybody in the U.S. to name some soccer players, they're going to be able to name women soccer players right. before they're going to be Absolutely. able to name male soccer players. And so it's such a great example of a place where um, if there if there isn't equal pay, then that's a problem, and that that, that shows us like it, it's right. not just uh, the structure of the economic models there; it has to do with um, it has to do with the gender discrimination underneath those economic models. But I. Um, I, I I don't like to get too much into those things. It's just outside of my areas of expertise right, right now.
0: But I, I'm curious because I mean you're a woman who's who's had success in two very different areas of life. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me that the part of the problem is that the women, to me anyway, seem less ruthless. Like when a when a male athlete isn't being paid enough, he doesn't show up for training camp, right? And, well, and he'll make a big deal about it in the media. Now, Megan has certainly, has certainly done that, but, um, you know, you—
1: It's hard to be ruthless when, you, when you're constantly reminded that you're basically, as a basketball player, that the league could leave at any time. The league could be pulled out from underneath you at any time. I see. There was very, you were always feeling sort of um, back on your heels and, and, and disempowered. Uh, you can't stand up to the league because you're not making any money. You know the league doesn't make enough money, and so therefore we, you don't even have the right to ask for anything more than we're giving you. You're a charity case. These kinds of things. I mean, that is literally the kind of the rhetoric that was happening around it. So I, it's not. Women are ruthless. I was like, you, you said women aren't as ruthless. I was just remembering just being bruised and battered coming out of <laughs> practice it, yeah. every day. You have a different um, point view absolutely on that. <laughs> uh, and and actually looking at the product right now in the WNBA, those women are amazing and I, absolutely. I. I I, ruthless is is probably something we can describe many of those players as. Um is they're strong and they're playing really hard. But um they're not as they, they don't have as much economic power. They that if they sit out a season, they sit out a season. Yeah. And there's not um and, and a lot of that has to do with with long-term discrimination against women in society. It has to do with media not covering the women in the same ways. It has to do with um you know things that are going to take generations to change. But you go and you watch one of those soccer games or you watch a WNBA game nowadays. These are amazing games. They have an amazing product. The WNBA right now is is, is such a high-quality product compared to what it was when I played even mm-hmm. um, that there's no reason besides all these structure, structural things that those arenas aren't full and that the tickets aren't being sold and that yeah. they're not making – I mean, maybe not making – You know, million million, but, you know, they should be making 10% of what the men are making, not 1%.
0: Well, the explanation I've heard for that is I forget what the – don't hold me to the exact quote, but it was something like, you know, a good high school team could defeat a a professional women's team, a high school men's team is what I mean.
1: You go watch the – go watch the games. I mean, go watch the games and and, and it's not – you enjoy a game because you're watching watching competition happen. And the competition is, is of a certain quality. And then saying, oh, someone else could walk in and play this game. It's like, that. what does that have to do with getting behind the product that you're seeing or caring about the team that you care about and yeah. cheering them on? We watch, we watch sports at all different levels. We go to high school games. We go to college games. We go to all sorts of things. To, like, say because, you know, because some high school players could come out here and maybe, you know, run faster to something else, they would not be a better, they would not be a better game certainly they would not be as good shooting passing running playing the game it would not be as pretty of a game i don't know it's that's it's such a disingenuous argument it's one of those kind of framing things Well, it's a that we different
0: watch. product i think i think the thing that what what my daughter's liked about it was it was it was not a team where you had you know one person being the hot dog all the time it was it seemed to be more of a uh, collaborative approach to basketball. Now, maybe that's changed since then. I and don't it, know. It,
1: it may be. I mean, the WNBA is a little different than the ABL, and also kind of the evolution of the, the women's pro game has happened where – when, when the ABL was there, it was sort of an extension of the women's college game, but now it's become a thing in and of itself. It's a different game. It's not men's pro, and it's not women's college. It's something that it's its own kind of product. The athleticism is really high. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little more, bit more one-on-one but uh, than the women's college game, but it's not as sort of kind of slow and just, I don't know. It's it's so For me, it's so much more entertaining than most – of the men's pro games, there's a few teams in the men's pro side that I like to watch, but um, but the whim- the women's games are really fun these days.
0: Well, congratulations on your uh, on your career and the, the work you're doing, which is uh, basically center stage in the in the current debate, because the, there's there's nothing more fundamental to keeping a country functioning than being able to trust the uh, the information that we base our votes on.
1: I'd be happy to step off the stage. We could fix these problems, and I can go back to obscurity and just teach in some classes. Um, I'd be happy to have our research not be so interesting right now, and I'm hoping that that we can collectively kind of make some dents against this problem. And it's, it's, it's going to be challenging, but I think it's really important.
0: Dr. Kate Starbird. Kate, thank you very much. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.